Good morning. It's a beautiful Easter Sunday. Just so good to have the rain over. Well, you know, usually about this time on Easter morning, I would be really tired and I would be putting toothpicks in my eyes to hold them open so I could preach in church because, uh, you know, I'd be up by three, I'd be down at Vasquez Rocks, wearing my costume, helping people find parking, setting up the lights, going through the whole show, freezing to death, picking up, putting up the chairs, stacking them all, and then get to go to church. So this is kind of an easy Easter, huh? It's actually Saturday today when I'm taping this. So we're going to be watching things along with you. But um, today we're just going to focus on the gospel itself and just uh, how the Passion Week and the death and resurrection of Jesus affects our lives and what it all means for us. It's just a good opportunity to reflect on the great truths of the Christian faith. So let's get at it. All right. Happy Easter to you. We want to get into the Word of God this morning, and we'll be kind of in some different places. Um, let me pray and get us started. Our great God, we're just so thankful for a beautiful day, and uh, we know that things are not normal right now, and we just ask for your blessing as we look at your Word together, because the Gospel doesn't change, and the hope of our salvation is permanent and fixed and real and true, and we just ask you to help us to grasp it this morning in your Word. In Christ's name, amen. So, Easter time. Easter, of course, is the time to reflect on the most significant event in human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The death of Jesus is the central event in our salvation because as the true Lamb of God, Jesus is the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. Propitiatory? Like, what's that? I mean, you just started and you're already using these big words. I know, I know, but propitiation is a Bible word. Well, at least is in the better translation. Some of them don't use it because it is a big word, but it's a legitimate word. It's a good word. It's in the Bible. Propitiate means to turn away anger or to appease someone. The simplest example might be if I scratch your new car and you're angry, what can I do to appease you? How can I turn away your anger? Well, I could pay for it or get my insurance company to pay for it and write you a apology, get on my knees and beg your forgiveness, things like that. Um, of course, the worse the offense, the more difficult is the task of appeasement. The greater the crime, the harder it is to appease. If I run over your dog, that would be more serious. Now, how do I appease that? Because I've taken something away that can't be replaced. If I run over your child, appeasement might, might be impossible, Right? Many societies are actually built on the idea of appeasement as a system of justice for, for those very kind of situations, something so serious that something can't be replaced. And so some token or some effort is made to appease the anger of those. That's how some cultures keep people from feuds and revenge and things like that. In fact, back in 1988, the United States Navy shot down an Iranian passenger jet and killed all the people on board. It was a mistake, something they thought was a, an enemy aircraft, and they killed all these people. And the United States ended up paying out over $60 million to the families of the people on that plane, because in that culture, that actually is a way of appeasing their anger and making up for what was lost, even though it was irreplaceable grief. So that's kind of woven into human societies to appease anger. But it's altogether different when we're talking about appeasing God or turning away his anger. 
I mean, what can we give God to accomplish that, to turn away his anger? With him, it's uh, different because his anger is not an emotional thing. Uh-oh, God's really upset. What are we going to do? It's not like that. It's not like that at all. So take that thought out of your head and put it some, away somewhere. It's nothing like that because it's not like he has a short fuse and uh, we irritate him and now we got to find out how to make him happy. A lot of people see God that way, but that's not it at all. God's anger which is very real, his wrath, is rooted in his justice. It's simply what his goodness requires. So remember that God is good. I mean, he's so good that he is fully and irrevocably against anything evil. And evil is moral wickedness or the corruption of what is good. And the Bible says it poetically like this in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil. And because true goodness cannot tolerate evil, God has, with perfect justice, targeted sinners for destruction. It's completely right that he do that. That's exactly what sinners like me deserve. So God is pure goodness. He has to hate evil. Or he himself would be corrupt if he didn't hate evil. So his infinite goodness directs his infinite power at the destruction of evil. And if human beings are evil, well, then that means us. We are targeted by that just and holy anger and wrath. So the fact is, it it actually is us. I mean, we are the only moral beings of all the creatures of the earth. So, And we're so evil... Moral evil is a subject that's entirely about us. That whole subject is about human beings because we're the only creatures of the earth that are moral beings at all, and we are moral failures. That's why only Adam and Eve were told that if they disobeyed, they would surely die. God didn't tell that to the animals. Only humans are responsible moral agents in our created realm. So sin is a human reality, And the evil that men do brings on them God's righteous penalty, which is death. So there's physical death, and then there's eternal death, which is exclusion from God's kingdom. Jesus called it outer darkness. That's spiritual death. And God's justice demands that. And unless his justice is somehow satisfied, unless God is appeased, we are all caught up in our own true moral guilt. So how can appeasement even happen? How can God's justice be satisfied? What price can we pay? Well, we can't do it. We're already on the list of the condemned. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to point to. Someone has to do it for us. Somebody has to appease God's anger on our behalf. Could God do it? Well, God's the one that's angry at sin in the first place, right? So the question is, does his justice preclude his saving us? And the answer is no. If justice were the only quality in God's character, we would be lost for sure, because he would not do that. But that's not his only quality. He is so much more than that. Though that is a perfectly beautiful quality in God, his justice. It's a wonderful thing. And his justice is the foundation 
for all understanding of good and evil. So God's very being determines what is good. Whatever is good to him is good because his nature is pure goodness. So there's an absolute goodness to God, an absolute purity in God. There's not the slightest moral failing. In fact, the New Testament says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But moral purity is not the only quality of God's nature. God is full of love. And that love flows from this eternal relationship that existed long before the creation between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Long before the world was, God loved. And God loved within the unity of the Godhead. And when he did create, he extended that love to his creation. Again, especially those creatures, us, made in his image, human beings. So love is just as essential an attribute of God as his justice. It's as full and real a part of him as his justice is. So when Moses asked God to reveal his glory, do you remember that? That glory, and God says, well, I can't show you my, all my glory or you'll die, but I'll show you part of my glory. And he put him in the cleft of a rock and his glory passed by. And he says, I'll take my hand away and you can see the tail end of my glory. And Moses is thinking splendor and majesty and all these incredible things. And that's what was there. But what actually happened is when God passed by Moses, he spoke words. There were words that came that described who God is. So God's glory is in his nature, not just in his spectacular presence. It's in his personal qualities. And these are the words that Moses heard. Exodus 34, 6. <clears throat> the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That is God's essential nature, grace, compassion, abounding in loving kindness. God loves his creation, and above all, he loves the pinnacle of creation, those amazing creatures made in his image, human beings. That's us. Now, we failed. We failed him. We rebelled against him. And so his anger his justice has targeted us for destruction. That is all true. And yet the Bible tells us that before God created the world, God made a plan to redeem wicked human beings because he knew we were going to fall. So his compassion moved him to set in place a plan to bring a glorious salvation to sinners, a salvation greater than the original creation was. If you look at what the glory of heaven is like and our restoration is like, it's more beautiful and more amazing than the original creation. God loves sinners. And his plan was to satisfy, to appease his own justice in regard to sinful humanity. So yes, God can do it because love is a true part of his nature and he chose to do it. And the Bible is the revelation of God's redemptive plan for us. So he will satisfy his own wrath and turn it away. Remember, God's wrath is not some emotional outburst. It's a settled rejection of all evil that's part of his pure and holy nature. In fact, it is that divine requirement that evil be punished 
that led God the Son to become human and actually bear the penalty of the sins of the world. And as we reflect in this holy season on the death and resurrection of Jesus, we must never let our minds wander from the reason that Jesus came to the cross and the motive behind it. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at part of that together. I had an opportunity to share this passage with a young man this week, and it was just a privilege and a joyous experience. So this is another one of those amazing, rich passages in the Apostle Paul. There's just so much packed into a few sentences. So we're going to, like, we're going to take a little part of it because I don't want to overwhelm you with it. But let's look at verse 8 through 10, Romans chapter 5, 8 through 10. Paul says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So first of all, what Jesus did was motivated by the love of God. That's what Paul says here. That God loves is as clear a truth as that God judges evil. And who does he love here? Sinners, right? The ones his justice targets. So we don't need to do something or to achieve something to have God's love His love was aimed at us while we were sinners. He's not mad at us today and then we do something, then now he loves us. He loved us before the foundation of the world. And his love is what set this plan of redemption in motion. It's always been there. When you think of God's justice, never, ever lose sight of God's love. And when you think of God's love, never lose sight of of his justice, because his love fully and completely honored his justice. That love was so great that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So what does that mean where he says in verse 9, he died for us? Well, when you have Christ as your Savior, you have been, using Paul's words here, justified by his blood. That means God accepts the payment, and you have perfect legal standing before God. You are not before him as a condemned person. You're before him as a justified person, right in his eyes. When we said earlier that someone has to turn away God's wrath from us, Jesus did that. God's justice does not target those who belong to Jesus because he himself bore the burden and the guilt of all of our sin. So the second part of verse 9 directly addresses the issue of propitiation, propitiating God's wrath. He says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Please notice what we're saved from. Not bad karma, not consequences decided by impersonal laws of the universe, not our self-torment, not our failing self-esteem. No, we are saved from the wrath of God. 
which justly targets us as sinners. But we're saved from that wrath by the love of God expressed through the death of Jesus Christ for us. So God has personally targeted us because we are morally wicked before God's standard. We're full of sin, but we are saved from that very thing justified by the blood of Jesus, saved from the wrath of God through him. And then verse 10 tells us that this incredible change has occurred in our condition before God, our standing with God, our relationship with God. We were actually his enemies. Rebels are enemies against kings. And against a perfect holy king, rebels are wicked enemies. So we were his enemies, But what word does Paul use? We have been reconciled. Reconciled. Sin shattered the relationship we have with our Creator. But Christ, having saved us from God's wrath, has reconciled us with our wonderful Creator. And when you have grasped that, it changes you. So we live our lives not as fearful slaves but as true sons and daughters of God, reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we live confidently, not confident in our goodness. My goodness, I would be, my goodness, I just used that expression. I shouldn't use that. My wickedness. I don't have that much goodness. And if I put trust in my personal goodness for my relationship with God, I'd be a basket case every day. But that's not what my relationship with God is based on. That's not what reconciliation is based on. It's based on what Jesus accomplished for us, not how good we are. So the cross is absolutely necessary for the salvation of any sinful human being. And the cross then transforms us, humbles us, and turns our hearts towards God. That's why Paul a very great sinner reconciled to God by Jesus, wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He knew his salvation was all of God's work, and his relationship with the world would never be the same because the cross has this transforming power as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts and our hearts are humbled and gratitude extends out to God and we have a different relationship with the world than we used to have. Its charms have fled away. One of my favorite preachers from the bygone era, the first half of the 19th century, was James Smith. I just love to read him, who was the pastor of New Park Street Church. You say, well, what church is that? Well, that was the church that some guy named Charles Spurgeon came to pastor right after him. He was the guy before him. And I think that congregation was equally blessed before and after. But Smith has a really concise and powerful way of expressing great themes of the Christian faith. And I just want to share with you one of his celebrated comments on the cross of Jesus. It's a little bit long, but I want you to just listen to it. He says, In the cross we see the rights of divine justice maintained, the designs of divine mercy revealed, sin appearing exceedingly sinful, the law magnified and honored, and the lawbreaker pardoned and delivered. 
At the cross, God and sinners meet, and a reconciliation takes place. Here, man drops the weapons of rebellion, and God lays aside the sword of divine displeasure. Here, the works of Satan are destroyed, and the gates of paradise are thrown open. Here, the creditor is discharged, every crime is atoned for, and everlasting righteousness is completed. Here, God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus, quoting Peter there. At the cross, mercy takes the throne. Justice guards her rights. Holiness maintains her prerogative. The sinner has hope, and iniquity is forever atoned for. At the cross, we are stripped of self and clothed with Christ. We lose our fears and obtain the sweetest comforts. We find paradise restored and have a foretaste of glory. Jehovah is revealed as the sinner's friend. Death is destroyed as the believer's foe. Satan's folly is published, his designs are frustrated, and his character is exposed to perpetual shame. At the cross, all the truths of revelation center, all the perfections of deity unite, and the way to eternal life is opened. The cross of Jesus, may it be the emblem of my faith, the subject of my song, the antidote of my sorrows, and the glory of my soul. It just fills my heart to read that. The, the cross is the glory of my soul. So now it's Easter, um, and we've talked about the cross, but we haven't covered much on the resurrection yet, so I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about that the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, the resurrection is the proof that the whole thing is true, that the cross actually accomplished what um, Smith there just said it accomplished. It actually, it's the proof of it. And the New Testament treats it as historical evidence, emphasizing eyewitness testimony, witnesses even willing to seal their testimony with their own lives. And preaching to the pagan philosophers in Acts chapter 17, Paul said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, I don't know what they thought of his talk up until that point, but that when he said resurrection, that got their attention. Because right after that, the text says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so it went from town to town, Paul preaching the gospel, always mentioning the resurrection. You know, the book of Acts is full of speeches and sermons by the apostles, and every single sermon they give is about the resurrection. They always mention that. Starting first with Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter reminds the Jews of how Jesus went about doing good and how he was cruelly handed over to death by them. And this Jesus, he says, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. 
So the resurrection is the great act of God in making clear that Jesus was God's man. He was telling the truth. He really did conquer death, and he died for us as a truly righteous man. So our hope in the cross would be much less certain without the reality of the resurrection. Notice that Paul declared to those philosophers in Athens that God is calling all men to repent. God has fixed a day, he said, that he will judge the world in righteousness. And that goes right back to the idea of God's wrath, God's wrath against sin, which targets sinners for judgment. But the resurrection announces the triumph of God over judgment, the triumph of God's love for the redeemed. His resurrection belongs to everyone who is his. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That's why fear should not grasp our hearts. We are safe and we are secure in the Savior. I think this is the first Easter globally where Christians have not been able to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. I mean, there might be a few places where they are, but most of the world, Christians are not personally gathering together today. I don't think that's ever happened before. It's, it's an amazing even thought. That special yearly gathering It's only happening in a few places. I've heard some people compare this Easter with the very first one because the disciples were sheltering in place in the upper room, right? They wouldn't go out, not because of a virus, but because, well, John's Gospel says they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. They still had not seen the risen Christ. And when the women showed up that early morning and told them about it, They they didn't believe. They weren't sure, most of them. They still had not seen him. They only had the women's word. So they were not celebrating the resurrection on Easter morning. Indeed, one of the marvelous evidences of the resurrection from a historical point of view is that the disciples were indeed doubtful, unbelieving, dejected, afraid. They had lost Jesus, and they just didn't know what to do. Their future was gone. And sometime during the day, Jesus appeared to Peter, and we don't know the details of that, but we know that there was a special appearance to Peter. But it was Sunday evening that Jesus appeared to the apostles as a group, except for Thomas, who wasn't there. And then over the course of 40 days, there were multiple appearances. One meeting in Galilee, sort of a resurrection rally, had more than 500 people present, and they saw Jesus. So when Pentecost came, just a few days after Jesus' ascension, the apostles were not fearful men anymore. All of a sudden, they were bold and willing to accept mistreatment and not afraid. What changed? Well, they had seen and heard and touched the risen Lord many times over the course of a number of weeks. And they went out to change the world, not fearing death, scorning it, being willing to endure anything to take the great truth that Jesus died for sinners, and that demonstrates God's love for the world. That's what we need to have sown into our hearts. Of all that he has given me, 
I lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. That's the great truth that is true of all who have put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. He will lose none of his own. So our own resurrection waits for us. So we're not sheltering in place like the first Easter disciples did in fear and despair. We have the Lord with us now. We know. We know how great his love for us is. We know that his great love led him to purchase our salvation with his own blood. We know he lives, and he lives with us even now, and nothing can separate us from him. I just want to close with the words of the Apostle Peter, the man that Jesus made a special personal appearance to, the man who preached the resurrected Christ on the day of Pentecost. And I just want to read how he kind of begins his letter, 1 Peter, and then we'll pray. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Lord, it's a glorious day. The sun is up in the sky. Your Son, our Savior, is on his throne and within our hearts. Father, bless all who approach you today in faith and humility. Give them an extra measure of faith during a time of crisis and difficulty in our nation. We rest our hearts in that inheritance, that imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. We long for it, and we wait for the day. Just help us to glorify you and magnify your name in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon.